Judges 10. This is what Holy Scripture says. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jer the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth Jer to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried in Camon. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet, you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites, he shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please do take your Bibles again and open to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10. I watched a very amusing video this past week. I don't even know where I saw it. I just know I watched it a few times because I thought it was so funny. It was a video of a toddler attempting to eat a banana. What made this video very humorous was that the toddler was wearing those water wings, those inflatable muscles, we used to call them, which uh, made bending his arms at the elbow impossible. So he was holding the banana and apparently had managed to get one bite, but as much as he would lunge forward and spin and walk, he was just not able to get the banana to his mouth. He was very frustrated. And his mother, apparently a woman after my own heart, got her camera out and filmed it because, uh, you know, they're kids. It's funny. And uh, eventually she, like, helped him and he ate the, the banana. Uh, grit and determination, like that little guy who wanted his banana, Grit and determination can be very, very commendable in life. They can also keep you stuck on the path to futility. It did not matter what he did. He was never going to be able to eat the banana. They had to get those inflatables off his arms. Some people cling to their idols like that toddler was clinging to the banana. 
we're just convinced we'll figure it out. We will find a way to find life out of the banana. But that's asking your arms to do the impossible. Israel seems in the book of Judges to be living like that toddler. They are holding the banana. They've got life in front of them. God has promised them life. But their idolatry forbids them from getting to God. I'm I'm kind of mixing my metaphor there. I'm going to back that up. I'm going to say the idolatry is the banana, just so we're clear. And they're trying, trying, trying to find life in that banana, trying to find life in the idol, but they will never get there. They'll never find it because your idols can't give you what they always promise. We see that again and again and again in the book of Judges. They would, uh, you know, go to their idols and then eventually call to God to help. God would help. And then what would they do? They would go right back to the idols that they craved even after God had rescued them from the results of that idolatry. So what I want to do in Judges chapter 10 is unpack what amounts to really almost a 100-year calendar of this futile history of Israel, of being rescued and going back to idols, being rescued, going back to idols, until you get to verse 14 where the Lord says, go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen Let them save you in your time of distress. This is what you never want to hear from God. I got nothing for you. Go to your idol. So the title on this calendar, if we're going to give a title, sometimes calendars have titled. This is called the misery calendar, (laughs) subtitled, Don't Let Your Idolatry Loop and Linger. So flip the calendar to page one, 45 years of peace and hypocrisy, not prosperity. Peace and hypocrisy. So Bramble Man, remember him, Abimelech? Bramble Man and the Shechemites have all killed each other. (laughs) The days of his faux kingship have finished. The days of civil war are over. There was a season for three years there where sin got the upper hand, chaos ensued. But this sad uprising implodes in upon itself, and it's over. Abimelech was not a judge. He's never called a judge. He didn't serve as a judge. He was the bramble man king wannabe. But his story sits right in the middle of the book of Judges, and it's given with a lot of detail. Judges chapter 9 is long, and there's lots of detail. It seems that the author of the book of Judges is wanting you and I to see how things keep getting worse in Israel instead of better. He's he's wanting to show, here's, here's what happens when God steps back and lets humans do what humans want to do. Some people read Judges like a, a book of cycles, like there's, there's rest, then rebellion, then enemy oppression, then deliverance by a judge, and then rest, and then it comes back and it cycles through. And while that's sort of true on the front end of Judges, after Gideon, that word rest never appears again. There were 40 years rest under Othniel's judgeship, Judges chapter 3, 80 years rest after Ehud's judgeship in Judges 3.30. Another 40 years rest after Deborah's judgeship in chapter 5. Another 40 years rest after Gideon defeats Midian, chapter 8, verse 28. But after that mention of rest in 8.28, you never see that word again. Even though there's no rest, there, there are these seasons of political peace But the foundational issue of personal idolatry is still lingering in the culture. Now, to provide the political peace, Yahweh raises up a couple of new judges. We see them here. First, Tola, verse 1. After Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shemir. So Tola is the second of what we call the minor judges. They, play, they don't play a minor role. Like they play a, they're not like a minor league team, like second-rate judges. It just means we, there, there's only a minor bit, a tiny bit of information about them. He plays a very major role. He's a judge. 
Shamgar was the first of the minor judges back in chapter 3. This judge, Tola, his judgeship lasted for 23 years. And under his judgeship, Israel is protected. But then comes another minor judge with whom there's at least a couple of question marks. And since we have a guy with this name in our church, I'll just say it the way we say his name, Jair. So after him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. You say, okay, you said there are questions about this. Yeah, what are the questions? Well, you don't get 30 sons unless you have a lot of wives. <laughs> and so it appears that this is another judge who maybe is drifting maybe the way Gideon did near the end of his judgeship. Maybe not, but you'll note that the record of his judgeship only includes evidences of his wealth and his power. There's no indicator that he did much more than rule. So if you go back to Tola, uh, back in verse 1, Tola arose to save Israel. That word save is very specific in the book of Judges. It's the same word that the angel of the Lord said to Gideon. You're going to save my people. And Gideon answers, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan's the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. That word save in, in this context means military, political, and in that sense, religious deliverance. And we don't know the details of Tola's deliverance. We just know that Jair is never said to have accomplished one. And perhaps that's because the nation as a whole was living in this state of impending peril. Because even though they're experiencing some measure of political security, they're walking in religious compromise. And we've said it many times, don't interpret peace in your life as necessarily the sign of God's blessing. Verse 6, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook Yahweh and did not serve him. Now, this is, again, this is one of these summaries that's easy to pass by. You may not have noticed there are seven fake gods listed here. There's Baal, Asherah, and then the unnamed gods of Syria, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and Philistia. Seven. Seven fake gods. Seven. <laughs> Later on, the author of this section gives a list of seven nations. It differs a little bit from the other list, but these are the seven nations that Yahweh had delivered Israel from. They're nations that oppressed Israel and he delivered them. So in verses 11 and 12, you read about the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Sidonians, Amalekites, Manites, which may be a, a variation of Midianite. Now that number seven is always important in your Bible. It's important to notice. doesn't always mean this, but often it is expressing what to the Hebrew mind is a sense of completion or fullness. And I think we're supposed to note here when we read seven gods, seven nations, the fullness of Israel's idolatry, the seven gods, and the fullness of God's deliverances. He's delivered them seven times. And the writer of this book wants us to feel something of the irony that Israel has been fully delivered from all of their enemies, and Israel is now fully worshiping all the idols of the world. In fact, Israel had adopted the very idols, the small g gods that Yahweh, the true God, had conquered. <laughs> Under, with Yahweh's help, they conquer some foreign fake deity, and then what do they do? They turn around and they worship that fake deity. You see this all the time in the book of Judges. Consider Gideon's story. The Midianites oppress Israel. What are, the Midianites are worshipers of Baal. They invoke their god, Baal, against Israel's god, Yahweh. And the Midianites and Baal are utterly decimated by Yahweh. 
expressly by Yahweh, because how does Yahweh do it? He does it with 300 observers, guys holding torches, jars, and trumpets, who don't fight. Yahweh fights. He destroys them. He takes them down. They're just there to testify it's Yahweh who's doing it and to be witnesses of what Yahweh does. It's all Yahweh. And what happens after that great deliverance? Israel abandons Yahweh and they pick up the worship of the God they just defeated, Baal. It never makes sense, but we do this all the time. How quickly we run back to the very idols that are out to kill us, to the idols that our Savior has exposed as fake gods, incapable saviors, deceptive liars, Solomon said this, like a dog that returns to its, his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. I've had a dog, and I've seen what they do with their own vomit. It is not pleasing. It's revolting. Your idol, whatever it is, promises you life. And it pulls the same bait and switch every time and gives you death. Eventually, God conquers your idol and you offer yourself to God. God offers himself to you. And what does your idol do? Does it just go away forever? No, your idol reorganizes, puts another worm on the same hook, and you turn from the author of life and you bite the hook of that idol again. I mean, have you never made some grand resolution? I'm never going to lie. I'm never going to cheat again. I'm never going to lust again. I'm never going to envy again. Only to break that resolution for the umpteenth time. All those sins are rooted in your idolatry. A man can understand that he's positionally free, free to live for God, and then choose to live like he's spiritually imprisoned, like a dog eating its own vomit, rather than taking our seat at the table of Yahweh's abundance and drinking from the river of his delights. Instead of delighting in God, we try to manipulate a fake one. Is that making sense? Paul said it this way, what shall we say then? Are we Christians to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we just keep sinning so we can highlight the grace of God? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And yet the same man wrote in the very next chapter, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you may know the good news that comes right after that verse, but I just want you to camp out with me for a moment on the ugly reality of our choices. If you're a Christian, that means the Spirit of God indwells you. That means there is never a time in your life where you have to sin, where you have to sin. There's no other option but sin. You believe that? You believe that in your marriage? You believe that in your workplace? There is never a single time you have to sin. Spirit of God indwells you. He's given you his word to direct you. When you sin, when I sin, it is always a choice. At the very best, it's a blunder. We are responsible for our choices. The Bible has categories of intentional sins. The blundering ones are the maybe unintentional sins. Still sin, still need to be dealt with. You see, in this way, we're like Israel. Israel is participating in the pantheon of idolatry while still calling themselves followers of the one God, Yahweh. Nobody's saying, well, oh, forget Yahweh. 
It's like, yeah, Yahweh's great. And Baal. And Asherah. And all those Egyptian gods. And the gods of the Sidonians. And the gods of the Amalekites. Come to think of it, the gods of the Ammonites too. And the Maonites and the Midianites. Those will all do. They're all awesome. That's not how it works with the Lord. God saves them. Then verse 6, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Look, just claiming to be a Christian, just attending church, just being born into a Christian family is not the same thing as obeying the scriptures like 1 John 5.21, which says, keep yourself from idols. Or what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. New Testament verses. New Testament verses. If you're thinking idolatry is an Old Testament thing and not a New Testament thing, you are not understanding one of the foundational concepts in your whole Bible. You either worship God or something else. Everybody's a worshiper. You either worship the true God or something else. And that something else is always an idol. Always. Are you at war with your idols? Look, the Christian life is, if somebody told you that the Christian life was a way to get an easy life, they were lying to you. The Christian life is not one of ease. We say at Grace Fellowship Church, we're here to delight in God, to the glory of God, for the good of all people. That word delight is very intentional. But delight doesn't mean it's all fun and games now with God. When we say delight, we're talking about the serious joy that we live with on this side of glory because we know it's coming, but right now we're at war. You are in spiritual warfare. Every Christian is. You are in a constant spiritual warfare until you breathe your very last breath. Then comes the rest. Until then, you're beating back idols. You're running away from idols. You're fleeing from idolatry. If you don't know anything about that battle, it's likely because you're sitting behind enemy lines somewhere, sipping some spiritual margarita at the pool of idolatry and thinking everything's just a-okay. You're not fighting idols because you're loving them. If you think, hey, I'm a pretty good person, I should be able to convince God to let me into his heaven because of the nice things I've done and I haven't been as bad as that guy or that person, then, then you have no idea of the real God and no idea of the real gospel. The good news of the gospel always begins with bad news. You ever think about that? The, the great news of the gospel always starts with really bad news. The really bad news that you have to hear and you have to understand and accept and believe is that you're dead in your sins. You can do no spiritual good. You are an idolater. You are loyal to fake gods. And thus you are guilty of the highest offense against the true God. And he looks at you and he commands you to repent from all of your sins and trust in the Savior that he has provided, Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the Christian religion. And loyalty to Jesus, to that Savior, demands the, the expungement of every fake savior, every idol. You cannot serve Jesus and anything else. No man can have two masters. The nation of Israel, they know relative peace right now, political peace, political calm. And while they are experiencing political calm, they are prostituting themselves to other gods. But that kind of hypocrisy cannot last. can't last forever. Judgment's going to come. If not in this life, then certainly in the next. But often in this life, it comes for you like it came for Israel. Flip the page. On the misery calendar to page 2, 18 years of God's stubborn rejection of his people. Verse 7, so the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. 
So this paragraph, beginning in verse 6 and all the way down, is, is actually setting up the whole rest of the book of Judges. We'll soon be learning about the next judge, Jephthah. Jephthah, he'll be the one to take on the Ammonites. And then we'll learn about Samson. Samson's the one to take on the Philistines. Different enemies, different times, different parts of the country, but the same issue. God is the one who raises up two different invading nations to make life hard for his people, just as he promised them he would do. So if that sounds, if it sounds really mean to you that God would send invading armies to make life hard for those people when they turn to idols, just remember that he told them a bunch of times that that's exactly what he would do. Stay loyal or this is what I'm going to do to bring you back. Verse 8, they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year for 18 years. They oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites. Anybody here 18 years old? All the 18-year-olds are camping. But if you're 18, that's your, that's your whole life. Your whole life has been oppression, difficulty, crushed. Verse 9, the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So in verse 7, God's angry at them. In verse 8, God directs their enemies to crush them, which means to shatter, like you would shatter a jar, smite. Uh, to oppress is, is to grievously crush. That results in verse 9, the, the whole nation being severely distressed. That, that, that word distressed is kind of like being tied up in knots, squeezed. And there's irony here. Tola, back in verse 1, had saved Ephraim. Now the Ammonites are shattering Ephraim, verse 9. Back in verse 3, Jair had judged Gilead. Now the Philistines crush Gilead in verse 8. And all of this political and social distress is sovereignly ordained by God for 18 years. Why? Well, what I alluded to a moment ago, before God brought Israel. In fact, before God had saved Israel out of Egypt, he took Moses aside. This is Exodus 3, verse 12. He said to Moses, I will be with you and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, Mount Sinai. That word serve, that's the same word being used in Judges 10, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Serve is a religious word in certain contexts. It is here. We might think of it as something closer to what we would think of as worship. They, they worshiped Baal and Ashtoreth. God saved Israel so that Israel would serve or worship God. They were saved to serve. But they did the very worst thing. They forsook the one who saved them and served fake gods. Verse 6 again, they forsook Yahweh and did not serve him. They forsook him. They left him. They abandoned him. They departed from him. Same word used in Genesis 2, verse 24, which talks about leaving and cleaving that passage. But you, you leave your family. You start a new one. You forsake the old. You start the new. Same word here. They, they forsook God. They removed themselves from the relationship with God. And God had warned them clearly that he would make their lives brutal, if they did this, there were, when, the, when the law is given, the covenant is made with Israel, um, six nations on one mountain, six nations on the other mountain, and these, these nations, they read the blessings. This, these six, they read the cursings. Let's drop into the cursings, Deuteronomy 28, verse 20. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. He made it clear. I'm your God. I rescued you. Do not forsake me. If you forsake me, I make your life hard. Later on, he uses very vivid language. This is Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers, 
Then this people will rise up and whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they're entering. They will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they'll be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. God looks at Israel, he says, I'm your rescuer, your deliverer, your savior, but if you forsake me, I will forsake you. And this is all rooted in the terms of the covenant that he had made with them. Remember the 10 words, what we call the 10 commandments. Exodus 20, verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, like a Baal altar, or the likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them like an Asherah pole. You shall not bow down to them or serve them For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Does that sound strange to your ears? That God could be jealous? God puts his people into an exclusive relationship, like husband and wife. And just like adultery would justify a husband's jealousy because of the exclusivity of the marriage relationship. So idolatry provokes Yahweh's holy and sinless and perfect jealousy, his righteous anger at our heinous disloyalty to him. We should not be surprised that God gets angry at our religious prostitution. We should be surprised he doesn't end our lives on the spot. He had warned Israel. I'll give you another one. Exodus 34, verse 12. Take care when you get into the promised land that you, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other God for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you're invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. But Israel would not listen and Israel would not heed. What would happen to us if God was not patient? God patiently waited in the days of Noah as Noah built an ark and preached the righteousness of God, calling for repentance. So you too, in the words of Peter, ought to count the patience of our Lord as salvation. (laughs) Or as Paul said in the Romans, do you presume on the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Are you provoking the jealousy of God with your idolatries? That's what I want to press, right? We can talk about it Sunday by Sunday, but friend, are you really doing business with God? Are you really looking to the Lord? Are you really acknowledging, I got idols in my life that I'm bowing down to? Are are you provoking the jealousy of God with your idolatry? Do you want to suffer the hand of discipline, Hebrews chapter 12, from God for your idolatries? God is not being patient with you so that you can dilly-dally away on your sins. He's kindly giving you space to repent. Instead of forsaking him, forsake your idols. Instead of serving your idols, serve him. Christian, we have framed this entire service as a solemn humiliation where we purposely bring ourselves low so that we can confess all intentional and unintentional sins. It is God's kindness that has let you continue to this point, but his patience does not last forever. Not in that sense. 
If you're still holding out and holding on to some silly idol, won't you please cast that demon behind your back right now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Israel's misery, their suffering, finally led to a change of heart, sort of. So we flip the page of the calendar to the third page. One day of repentance, sort of. This is verse 10, and the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. The trouble in the book of Judges is that confessions, it's always a little tricky to know, was that for real? Or is that just because life is hard? Why are they saying these words right now? They're getting crushed. <laughs> There's no real stronger words in Hebrew to talk about the misery that they're, in, they're under. Life stinks. It's hard. If you've got children, you either know or you will know the difference between humble confession and getting caught. I mean, there's one thing when that little person tearfully comes up to you with little cookie crumbs down, the, down their chin going, I'm really sorry. I know I wasn't supposed to get in the cookie jar, but I passed the cookie jar, and I had a cookie. As a cookie. I ate a cookie. Please forgive me. All right, we'll forgive you. It's a totally different thing when you walk into the kitchen and the metaphorical hand is in the cookie jar, and you catch them in the act, and they pull their hand out really quick and say, oh, please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me. In both cases, they may actually mean what they say. It may be very genuine. But it sure is a lot harder to tell in the second case, isn't it? That's the case for Israel. Is it real? Or are they asking for forgiveness because they just want to get out of trouble? Since most of our young adults are gone, I'm going to talk about them. And the rest of you who are young adults and are here, plug your ears. Uh, one thing that I have, you don't have to plug your ears. Uh, one thing I have greatly appreciated amongst our young adults, our younger brothers and sisters, is their overall commitment to honesty before the Lord and one another in confessing their sins before they're caught. And what I mean by that is, what I see on the whole, maybe not every single one, but on the whole, is a bunch of young people who are doing serious business with the Lord. They're confessing their sins to one another. They're making good restitution when it's needed. They're being quick to forgive each other. And I just would say perhaps us older ones might want to look behind to the younger ones and maybe ask, are we leading by example here? Or should we be corrected by the example of our younger brothers and sisters? Confessing a sin is hard. I don't recall a time in my life when it was ever easy. It's hard. And in fact, the older you get, there's a sense where the more you have to lose. But God gives grace to the humble. Paul told Felix, while he was in chains, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Are you taking pains to have a clear conscience with your husband, with your wife, people you work with? You taking pains? You taking the you taking the brunt of it to own your sin? Not, hey, I've really been sinning, but so have you. Paul kept his accounts short with God. He kept his accounts short with people. He sought to make sure there was no sin going unconfessed, not dealt with. That's a very good way to live. He didn't wait until he was caught. He didn't wait until God brought the hand of discipline. So whether or not Israel's confession here was for real, it's very hard to tell. At least this time they're, they're not praying to Baal. They are admitting that they'd sinned. They, they do confess they've been worshiping fake gods. 
They do speak frankly with God. That's all good and admirable. And we read that and we maybe think, oh, okay, good. They're coming to their senses. Surely now God is going to send them a new judge, a new savior. He's going to fix everything. But that takes you, my friends, to one of the hardest parts of your Bible. Flip the page to number four. Many days of miserable rejection. Verse 11, Yahweh said to the people of Israel, didn't I save you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Sidonians, Amalekites, Manites, and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Am I not the one who rescued you over many years from all those oppressors and crushers and distressors? Have I not met your full idolatry with my full salvation? Answer, yes. Verse 13, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. If you wait too long, God may give up on you. God looks at Israel. He goes, look, it's been 63 years and a few days I've been here the whole time, and now, now you want my help? You forsook me a long time ago. I bet you didn't even notice that I had already forsaken you. You've been busy crying out to your fake gods for years. Go cry out to them now. I'm sure they're going to help you. Not, because they're not real. Oh, now that things are really, really hard, you're going to remember me? Now that you've... Now that things are really difficult, you're going you're to come to me? Did you think I had forgotten about you? I'm the one who's been making your life so hard. But guess what? It's too late. Go and cry to your little idols. Brother, sister, you never want to hear that. You never want to hear that from God. Friend, let me ask you, what are you going to do in the day of disaster? What are you going to do in the day of disaster if God looks at you and he says, sorry, office closed, go cry to your idol. Go see what your credit card will do for you. Ask your pornography to settle your marriage problems. Use all your money to buy back the one you love from the grave. Get your cultivated social media image to cure your cancer. Pray to your fame to end your loneliness. Buy a new house, a bigger house, a better house to get that parental approval. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Man, it all seems so clear and obvious when we're all sitting here and thinking about it, doesn't it? that those idols are powerless, useless, speechless, lifeless, graceless. They cannot do anything. They are fake. They are unreal. They are non-existent. It is so obvious, but the proof of repentance is in the pudding. What will Israel do when they hear these words from God? When God says to them, go cry out to your idols, what are they going to do? Well, rather than balk at God's judgment... They humble themselves. They yield themselves to God. Almost as if they knew he's so full of love and mercy. Verse 15. The people of Israel said to Yahweh, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served Yahweh. If that first repentance was questionable, this one seems a lot better. <laughs> they had forsaken Yahweh, served Baal. Now they turn to Yahweh and they worship him and they forsake Baal. If God tells you to run back to your idols, but you stay put right there in front of God and wait for him, that's a good sign. 
because you're starting to remember what God is really like. And he is so very different than your idol of choice. He is powerful. He is able. He's full of truth and life and grace. Where else can we go but to you, Lord? So Israel humbles herself before God, and Israel waits. Flip to the last page of the calendar, one day of mercy, the very end of verse 16. And he, God, became impatient over the misery of Israel. At some point, not because of their repentance, but solely because of his great mercy and love, God's patience with his own forsaking of Israel became too much for him. He became impatient over their misery. It's like he's saying God couldn't take it anymore. Like a parent who grounds his rotten little son for a year. He did something really awful. He says, you're grounded for a year and it's just and it's fair. He deserves it. He deserves to be grounded for a year. And he is grounded for a year. No sports, no fun, no screens, no friends. But around month seven, that dad is moved to pity because of the sorrow that he has caused in that little son. So he calls off the last five months of the grounding. He spares the son. He sets his son free. Even though the son has done something that deserves much, much punishment, it's just that that dad has become impatient with the misery of his son. And what you can see in that fictional father with his son, we can identify in a small way with God and rebellious Israel and see writ large with God's salvation through Christ of his entire church. He grew impatient over the misery of his people, so he saves them. Nobody understands hell better than God. What is at the motivational center of God's saving actions? It's his love, his mercy, his grace. Why did Jesus come to earth? Was it because he looked down and saw something good in you? Not at all. For God so loved the world. It was his love that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It was the love of God that provoked the salvation of God. The, the infinitely complex being, our triune God in triune agreement was moved by mercy and love and impatience over the future misery of those whom he had chosen before the creation of the world. So God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the, uh, in the, name of the only son of God. What about you? Are you some pathetic underling doing the bidding of a fake God? Or has the real God saved you from all of your sins and given you his own spirit and freed you to life and life eternal? Come all the way to Jesus, friend, and be saved. Perhaps today is your day of mercy. Perhaps today is the day the calendar flips for you and it's the day of mercy. I'm spared from the misery. The only thing holding you back from salvation is you. God has made the offer. He invites you to come, but you've got to come. You've got to come. Nowhere in the Bible it says wait around for God to do something. God has done it, but you have to come. You have to repent. You have to believe. You have to trust. So come to him. Be saved from this crooked and perverse generation, as Peter called it. If you're already a Christian, oh, thank God for his hand of discipline that sometimes comes your way. Aren't you glad that God would willingly crush you, temporarily forsake you, in order to keep you from the endless misery and severe distress of hell? He loves you too much to let you wander too far. Far, far better than waiting for the discipline of God is for you to come back of your own volition. Be the little kid who's got cookie crumbs on your chin and go to your heavenly father. Humble yourself before him. Confess your sins. Ask his forgiveness. 
Do all that you possibly can to have a clean conscience before God. You might be sitting there and saying, yeah, but you have no clue how hard my life is. You're right. I know how hard your life will be if you don't repent. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. But take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. No Christian will ever lose their salvation. But the book of Hebrews is in your Bible for a reason. With its warnings and warnings and warnings, don't you ever presume upon the grace of God. If you stop persevering, that very well can be the evidence you were never truly born again. Some who profess to be Christians will show they never were by their fierce loyalty to their idols. A loyalty from which not even misery and distress will pry loose their hands. Friend, are you chasing a banana? <laughs> An idol of some kind that keeps promising to satisfy your soul but never gives you what your soul craves? God has graciously designed the world so that your spiritual elbows will not bend. There is no way to get what you crave out of that fake God. Only the author of life can give life. So give up your idols. Humble yourself. Look to him. Perhaps he will be impatient with your suffering and lead you to himself. Let's pray together. Lord, we have sought to solemnly humble ourselves today. We want to admit that apart from your grace, we are idolaters at heart. So we want to respond to this fearful warning in your word. Each of us who are Christians, we want to take what we know to be our idol of choice, maybe our idols of choice, Maybe comfort, maybe peace, control, sex, fame. Whatever that thing is that we feel will die without it, we'll get furious if anyone interferes with it. We take that idol, Lord, hold it up before you and say, please crush it. Crush it. And we all look to you now and say, you are enough for us. So forgive us, cleanse us, we ask. Amen.